0: Hi, this is DebtWired Managing Editor, Andrew Ragsley. Welcome to the latest edition of our DebtWired podcast. On this episode, we are digging into dip financing litigation and related inter-creditor issues with Michael R. Handler, partner in King & Spaulding's financial restructuring practice. On the podcast... Our host, Deputy Editor Rashmi Basu and Michael, talk about various litigious issues around recent inter-creditor squabbles and dip financings, such as adequate protection and priming liens, backstop fees, creditor-on-creditor violence, and collateral stripping.
1: Michael, thank you so much for being here.
2: My pleasure, and thank you so much for having me, Reshmi.
1: You have been involved in some very high-profile Chapter 11 cases representing minority lenders. What have been the key takeaways in these cases?
2: I think all of these cases, Asena, 24-Hour Fitness, and and Board Riders, um, and others that I was not involved in, underscore the willingness of minority lenders to take various degrees of financial risk. To protect their contractual and legal rights, and the f- financial risks may include payment of out-of-pocket legal fees, which aren't eventually, which you know may not eventually be reimbursed as part of it—a settlement or a court order. And then, in some of these cases, um, the minority lenders are foregoing the loss of lesser participation rights and opportunities that are offered to consenting minority lenders. And that, that was the case in Asino where there was a uh, deadline to join the RSA in order to be able to participate in the uh, portion of the DIP commitments that were offered to the minority lenders. and And the minority lender group was uh, litigating for full participation rights rather than 50%. And so there was definitely a risk that if the objection was not successful or we didn't reach a settlement that not only would they, they wouldn't be able to participate in the dip at all. And in that case, the dip was extremely, uh, lucrative and a huge portion of, of the total recovery. So much so that the prepetition term loan claims that had dip rights were, were trading in the market that had one hundred percent dip rights because they were part of the backstop group were trading at a significantly higher value than the non-backstop term loan claims. So, uh, re- real economic consequences. I think another takeaway is just strategically. In all of these cases, there is some sort of incentive for the borrower and the sponsor to effectuate these transactions. Now, whether there is a specific reason that minority lenders aren't, um, you know, given the opportunity to participate pro rata, sometimes that's driven by the, you know, the required lender group or the or the ad hoc group. But in a lot of these situations the sponsors themselves are participating in the financing or there's some other uh incentive for the sponsor and the borrower to structure the deal the way they they have and i think another key takeaway is that in a lot of these cases it's not just about equal treatment um Sometimes unequal treatment is provided for under the credit agreement. The credit agreement generally permits uh, lenders holding more than 50% of the loan or, or whatever other uh, formulation for required lenders, uh, the right to direct the agent with respect to exercise of remedies and matters relating to collateral. And that's an incremental right that minority lenders are not afforded. Um, similarly, backstop, Fees uh, paid to majority lender groups for backstopping uh, financing are completely appropriate. Same with structuring fees. But I think in a lot of the cases where you have minority lender groups organizing, it, it's there's a, a sense that the borrower and, and the majority lender group have have acted too aggressively to to strip value from from the minority lenders, and in all of these cases, at least from the perspective of the minority lender group, they, they think that these t- transactions violated either credit agreement provisions or provisions under the bankruptcy code, and that's why you're seeing minority lender groups organizing and, and challenging these transactions under various theories.
1: So some of these bankruptcy loans have been criticized for providing too much value to backstop parties. What is your take on this? What mechanisms have backstop parties used to improve economics, you know, such as fees that can ultimately impair our disenfranchised lenders?
2: So in some respects, the backstop fee can be a a misnomer in, in reality because the the fee is really, although it may be labeled a backstop fee, it's, it's really part of exercising the leverage that the majority lender group has vis-a-vis their ability to control required lenders or in the context of bankruptcy, they, they may be either control of a bankruptcy class in order to get an impaired accepting class to confirm a plan or at least be able to block a bankruptcy class. And so what you see is that in a lot of these cases, the backstop fees are not really tied to the risk of um, the, the financing being uh, under-allocated. And let me just take a step back. So for for the for the audience uh, who I'm sure is you know very sophisticated, but a backstop fee is a fee paid to one or more lenders that are essentially committing to uh provide financing in excess of their pro rata share. And so for example, let's say you have a, a proposed dip financing that's um being Arranged by an ad hoc group of senior term loan lenders. And the ad hoc group holds, let's say, 68% of the term loan, the total term loan facility. And let's say in this situation, the DIP financing that's being provided is, is being offered to all of the minority lenders per rata. So everyone in the facility that is a Terminal lender is able to participate um, based on their pro rata share um, of, of term loads. So the, the ad hoc group backstopping the dip would get a fee premised on the risk that the minority lenders, the non-backstop, the non-ad hoc group slash backstop group lenders are not going to participate in the dip financing. And the ad hoc group has to fund more than their prorata share, under the the theory that the, you know they should be compensated because they're taking that incremental risk. But what, in a lot of cases, and and certainly the case in Asina, you have this what I will call a, a paradox in that you're, the. Ad hoc group is getting uh, very rich backstop fees to backstop a dip that they are, that is so attractive from uh, an economic perspective that they are limiting participation in that dip. And in a scene of the case, was, you know, only the the minority lenders could only participate in 50% of the facility. And so, it's not really reflecting the actual like risk that that the backstop is intended to compensate the backstop lenders for, but instead it's just another bucket of compensation and, and, and a basis to you know provide the ad hoc group with incremental consideration. That being said, to to be crystal clear, backstop fees are completely appropriate. And I I represent majority lender groups all the time and will vigorously advocate for backstop fees. In certain circumstances, however, particularly where minority lenders are are being excluded from, you know, pro rata participation, if a backstop fee is extremely uh, lucrative, you have to kind of scratch your head. Especially when, and try to, you know, understand whether it really is reflective of the the risk of, you know, non-participation or it is instead just a way to strip value from minority lenders and allocate it to the majority group.
1: And have the courts been reluctant to grant non-consensual priming links?
2: Well, I, I would say that debtors themselves are definitely reluctant to accept dip financing from a, a third-party lender on a non-consensual basis. You know, meaning non-consensual priming financing, particularly if they can get it from existing lenders on a consensual basis, even at a higher cost. And so, I think that that's why in a lot of um, dip financing so attractive, and that it's not really. Reflecting the the market cost of capital, right? If you went out to the market to fund um, to obtain priming first out financing, you could get it a lot cheaper than what you're you're typically getting in dips. But the the caveat is that the debtor would face a a priming. Fight and and a fight over adequate protection that is it's not in in their interest. And the other point is, oftentimes, the senior lenders that are providing the dip are the class, the fulcrum lenders, meaning they're the the class of claims that are entitled to a majority of the equity. They typically are the party that the debtor looks to to structure. the the plan through an RSA and the debtor is incentivized to, you know, reach a confirmable plan in a quick way and and in a way that um, is uh, free of litigation. And so I think the debtor would, would definitely rather take, um, higher financing than, than risk um, a protracted fight over adequate protection. Um, so the, the first point is that you don't really see a lot of um, non-consensual priming financings because it, it typically is not in the debtor's best interest. I think in circumstances where, in the rare circumstances where you where you do see it, assuming that the debtor can show that there's a sufficient equity cushion, meaning that the value of the collateral exceeds the prepetition secured debt, I think the court is more inclined to then to grant it. All, all things being you know equal, if, if it's a close call, because the financings often key to keeping. The debtor uh, operating. Uh, So, if the court has to make a decision whether to to get employees paid and trade creditors paid versus, you know, put additional risk to the prepetition secured lender, I think it's going to choose the former rather than the latter.
1: And Michael, what is the level of scrutiny on dip financings, especially if a party is an insider? How do you define an insider?
2: sure so the standard for reviewing dip financing and and other transactions such as sale transactions between the debtor and and a third party is the business judgment rule and this is a a state law um, concept which i'm sure any any lawyer has even a non-restructuring lawyer has learned about in law school and it's essentially a presumption that in making a business decision, the directors of a corporation acted on a informed basis in good faith and in the honest belief that the action taken was in the best interest of the company. And at a high level, it's it's a very deferential standard and really means that courts are going to approve debt financing unless... They view certain aspects of it as either violating applicable bankruptcy law or very extreme, such that the presumption uh, that the debtors um, acted in an informed basis and in good faith is rebutted. Now, if debt financing being provided by an insider. Then the standard is stricter, heightened standard of entire fairness, which um, looks to whether the process and price of the proposed transaction was fair and whether fiduciary duties were properly taken into consideration. And so that, that's a higher scrutiny. Um, where you're going to look at how the the process the dip financing was negotiated, you may uh, depose the the debtor's investment bank and you know look to see whether they really did canvas the market for dip financing and, and whether the dip financing provided by the insider was was truly you know the only dip financing available with, you know, the relevant considerations, you know, set forth under Section 364, right? I mean, it, it gets a little bit complicated if the uh, an insider was a, a pre-petition secured lender, and then the debtor is, you know, can only get Perry or Junior dip financing without you know, priming the the dip financing of an insider. And so, you know, then the debtor's faced with, well, do I take the dip financing from the insider or do I prime the insider and and get into an adequate protection fight? And so, again, I think it's not so much a different process than non-insider dip financing. I think the court is just going to um, scrutinize the dip financing and make sure it, it reflects, you know, market terms in a more heightened manner than um, than you would ordinarily see in, in, in financing provided by a non insider. Um, and the there was a decision in the Latin American Airlines uh, case that was adjudicating whether to approve dip financing provided by an insider. And although the court found applying the entire fairness standard that the dip financing, that the debtors met that burden. So I think it provides a good sort of overview of, you know, what the courts look at for purposes of satisfying the entire fairness standard. And then to address your last question, which is What is an insider under the bankruptcy code? Um, That's a really good question. I I think, at a high level, there are two general categories of insiders statutory insiders and non statutory insiders. Section 10131 of the bankruptcy code provides a definition of insider um, with, with certain examples of insiders, but it is not intended to be exhaustive. The most common type of insider is an affiliate insider, which the bankruptcy code defines to mean an entity that directly or indirectly controls or holds with the power to vote 20% or more of the outstanding voting securities of the debtor. So effectively, a a 20% shareholder or or an affiliate of a 20% shareholder. But there's a wrinkle. Because Section 101.31 is not an exhaustive list, There is the other concept called uh, a non-statutory insider, which is basically an insider, but that's not based on the definition of an insider under the bankruptcy code. And there, that's really based off of uh, case laws, case law determining what an insider would be. And I think the, the operative majority test, although there's some... Uh, minority courts that have slightly different standards is that um, there's both a close relationship with the debtor that is comparable to an enumerated insider, namely probably a 20% stockholder, and that the transaction was non-arm's length.
1: And then going back to Ladham Airlines, the dip financing was such a big and kind of A big issue in the bankruptcy case, lots of conflict around it. We saw amendments and a subsequent replacement of the facility. There was also a dispute in the company loans. Why was this such a messy Chapter 11?
2: So I think there are a lot of different reasons. I think the first reason is, and this applies to all, I think, litigious Chapter 11 cases. First, you have to take a look at the capital structure. You have a lot of different um, tranches of funded debt, some secured, some unsecured. And so it's not clear which, um, you know, funded debt class of claims is, is the fulcrum or which, fund, you know, which funded debt class of claims is entitled to you know what what value? Uh, not that it ever is clear, but if, for example, you have two tranches of debt, and there's you know no question that the senior class is undersecured, then maybe you're just dealing with you know what is the unencumbered value, and in a lot of cases, unencumbered value. Maybe limited, uh, you know, avoidance proceeds and, and other, you know, estate claims, and so although it can be highly litigated, it's it's not, it's not super complicated. So I think the first issue is capital structure. The other issue is corporate structure. Um, you have a lot of different silos in in LADAM which is again common for a lot of. Contentious, litigious, long bankruptcy cases. Uh, it's not just you know one or two entities with all the uh, operating value or the funded debt. You know, in a, in a simple structure where you have, let's say, a one L facility and a two L facility, and the one L facility and the two L facility have the same guarantors and and the same borrower, well, then any intercompany loan issues are not going to be, it's not going to matter because the 2L is going to be similarly situated as the 1L. Um, But where you have claims against different boxes, intercompany claims become way more relevant. uh, and. And then you also have, again, when you have claims against different boxes, issues on valuing the uh, subsidiaries themselves relative to the entire enterprise. And so it, it can be very complicated. The other issue, again, President Laddam, is um, there's a lot of value, uh, and that is relevant in for a couple of different reasons. One. There's a lot of value to to litigate and distribute, meaning that you know in LATAM, there's a big fight over a backstop B. Like I said at the beginning, in some cases, there's just not much uh, asset value to go around. And so any new money is, is really more about incentivizing participation and, and increasing the number of participants rather than excluding participants here there's a a lot of willingness to to fund um new money and uh through through the rights offering and the combination of debt and equity and so you have various parties you know fighting over the, the the market value to do so um and then you also have you know again there's a lot of value and it's a desirable asset you have non uh, affiliate parties that are, are interested in the assets and so again it, it goes down to there's just a valuation is, is more relevant here because the asset is viewed as desirable by other different parties and it's not in a situation where you know the senior lenders are basically forced to equitize their claims because there's no other buyer, uh, for the enterprise at a value that, that wouldn't just completely, um, you know, is not attractive. So I think those are a lot of the factors, which are prevalent in other cases. Um, I think in cases where the debtor is there's just less value to go around there's the debtor can't afford to remain in chapter 11 and junior creditors are just less likely to to try to litigate um and also are going to take you know uh, what what restructuring professionals call a tip meaning just basically consideration to go away rather than litigate to, to get better treatment than what the plan sponsors are proposing.
1: And one thing we are seeing in the market is a lot of concern about collateral erosion. What is your take about the non-pro-rata super secure facilities or an incremental add-on that can result in a collateral strip? And you know how are lenders protecting themselves when documents can be amended to allow these type of transactions given the voting mechanism? And some people are calling this voter gerrymandering. I mean, what's your take on this?
2: Yeah, so I, I think you you touched on a, a couple of of overlapping but but distinct issues. So I think there's really when I think of collateral stripping, I, I think of what I and my colleagues and others refer to like leakage transactions, and that's transactions where the the company is essentially stripping the collateral um, from the the secured restricted group, the loan, you know from loan parties to pursue liability management transactions. So I think the most famous example is J. Crew, where at a very very high level. The company moved the J. Crew trademarks to an unrestricted subsidiary, and the trademarks were collateral of the term lenders. They moved it to an unrestricted subsidiary and then used that unrestricted subsidiary to consummate a financing that exchanged hold code notes at a discount. At a significant discount um, for notes secured by the JP, uh, the, the J Crew intellectual property issued by the unrestricted subsidiary. So the net effect of that transaction was to dilute the value of the collateral securing the term loan obligations, but to increase the value of. J Cruise equity by deleveraging the company through the uh, holdco note exchange, and so for the sponsor it was a great transaction. For the term loan lenders, it arguably was not a great transaction because now, like their one of their primary sources of collateral was now outside of their. the loan party, restricted group. Um, you could argue that the deleveraging helped the term loan lenders, but in that particular case, the deleveraging was at the holdco level, which was structurally subordinated to the the, the J.Crew term loan debt. So in a downside scenario, that debt was not going to really dilute the J.Crew um, Recovery and, and effectively from the J Crew terminal lenders' perspective, it was basically equity um, from a waterfall perspective, and so that that's one kind of collateral stripping. And, and you see there are other types of transactions um, similar to that, and the loan market has absolutely uh, reacted to. Those types of transactions to um, protect against future, you know, well, you know, J. type transactions. So there's lots of different examples, and, and just to give a, a plug, King and Spalding has a uh, an app through its uh, private credit and special situations practice called the Hub. If you search on the App Store, uh, King and Sp- King Spalding Hub. You can download it, and there's a variety of uh, articles that essentially uh, describe these leakage transactions and how to uh, put in terms and credit docs that basically plug these various holes. So, for example, with respect to J. Crew, there's a couple of ways to protect against that kind of transaction or, or a similar transaction effectuated through unrestricted subsidiaries. So you see sometimes unrestricted subsidiary capacity, investment capacity, and unrestricted subsidiaries subject to a leverage test. There are provisions that King and Spalding tries to negotiate, which prohibits crown jewels, material assets from being invested in unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, and so that's just one of one of many ways that we're protecting against these legal transactions. Another type of legal transaction that I think everyone knows about and is you know focused on in when they're negotiating loan documents was the PetSmart um, transaction, where PetSmart was able to release. The, the guarantees on, of the Chewy subsidiary by transferring, you know, a small percentage of its equity ownership to an unrestricted subsidiary. And that resulted in the the Chewy box, uh, the collateral in the Chewy box um, being released from securing the, the term loan obligations, but it also re- resulted in the, the, chewy entity from becoming a non guarantor restricted subsidiary um, which opened up various which can open up various you know additional leakage and and that was effectuated through a provision which basically said that uh you could release liens in the guarantee if a subsidiary became a non wholly owned subsidiary, and so now you see. Um, language and, and credit docs basically protecting against the sponsor slash borrower from effectuating a, a de minimis transfer for purposes of of causing the, the release of, of the guarantee and, and the liens. So that's one category. I think the other category, which I would call not so much collateral stripping, but priming Transactions. In these priming financing transactions, like we've seen in CERTA, Board Riders, Trimark, and NYDJ, the company seeks to raise incremental financing on a priming lien basis by offering it to, at very least, required lenders. Having the required lenders effectuate the amendments necessary, purportedly necessary to effectuate the priming financing, including by entering into a new intercreditor agreement, directing the agent to enter into a new intercreditor agreement, um, changing the waterfall. And then as an inducement to providing the priming financing. The bar, were then th- purportedly through open market purchase uh, provisions, buys the um, exchanges buys again. It's you know all purported exchanges the loans held by the required lender group, and it, it, for loans that are under this new priming facility. And, look, if it's offered pro rata to all lenders, then I think it's a great way to, you know, raise new capital. It's no different than a a dip financing offered pro rata to all lenders. The company needs money, and the lenders who want to participate are encouraged to do so, and as an inducement, Get to roll up their existing claims into this new super priority facility. Usually, the, the new money is first out, and the roll up is is second out. And if you're not willing to put in new money, then you know you get prime. But you had the same opportunity, and, and this happens all the time, right? Like there's priming financings all of the time. I think the difference is in, in Serta and Trimark. In board riders and in myD in myDj, the priming financing wasn't offered to all lenders, and so that's where you get the litigation. Um, and so that again this is it's all these issues are certainly being are currently being litigated as to whether they were permitted under the credit agreement and, and otherwise you know violate New York state law, namely the implied covenant of good faith. But I think that's the the second category of of what I think you, you you know, refer to as collateral stripping. It's, I would call it collateral subordination. And I think one way lawyers are are dealing with that um, is having, you know, language and the sacred right provisions that, you know, more clearly prohibit that type of transaction. Again, the, the the plaintiffs in CERTA, board riders, Trimark would argue that the credit agreement um, did prohibit the, the priming financing, but I think a lot of like the new language is, is making it clear, if, if possible, um, that, that that's not permitted. I think another formulation is that priming financing is offer has to be is permitted but it has to be offered to all lenders pro rata and that's personally my preferred formulation and what i what i think should be the market standard because priming financing is not a bad thing in and of itself in a lot of distressed situations companies need more money and they're not going to get it on a peri or junior basis so how do you get it you get it on a priming basis and that is perfectly fine from a an equity stand, standpoint as long as you offer it pro rata to all lenders um again and look i i, I don't want to there's certainly fact patterns again this is the old uh you know whenever my civil procedure professor was asked a question that he didn't, you know, think that there was a clear answer to. He said, "It depends who's paying me." And so, can I, you know, say definitively that there's never a circumstance where, depending upon the the four corners of the credit agreement, that priming financing is, is appropriate when it's not offered to all lenders pro rata? No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's always inappropriate, but. The other problem is at least in board riders, you not only have a priming financing, you have the stripping of covenants, which is kind of, you know, unbelievable when you think about it, right? You have covenant stripping in the context of bond exchanges, right? But that's when it's offered to all bondholders and it's to incentivize participation, right? Here, you had, in board riders, you had the required lender group that was exchanging its loans into this new super-priority tranche that the minority lenders weren't um, able to participate in, basically gutting the existing now junior facility from having any covenant protections and then also entering into a completely off market intercreditor agreement. And so there there's no, you know, business purpose for stripping covenants in that kind of scenario where you're not incentivizing participation other than to further weaken and disenfranchise the the junior non-participating class in anticipation of a, you know, a downside scenario. Um, And, and it's, you know, again, it's a a lot of these cases are just, it's not just as simple as, Oh, it's a priming financing. It's it's good or bad. It's really, you have to look at at the the facts and circumstances and, and what, you know, what was done and, and why it was done.
1: I mean, do you think that we're seeing an erosion of collateral as a sacred right in the credit markets and where there's other lender protections that have eroded since the pandemic? So
2: I would say, I, I think it's an erosion. It's funny, if it's a sacred right, it's either a sacred right or it's not. And then you see, um, you know, obviously litigation over whether a sacred right is breached I don't think you're seeing much of an erosion of sacred rights in terms of what's written on the four corners of the bond indenture or the loan agreement. I think what you're seeing is more aggressive either interpretations or ways to navigate around the purported sacred rights in the loan and Agreements and in, in bond indentures, and so I think that is really what I would describe as as, as the the headline. And so, for example, in, in the Westco and Cora priming transaction that I know everyone is talking about, right there, my understanding, and I, and I know that people don't generally have the the actual documentation. Is my understanding is that it, it there wasn't really a, it wasn't a priming transaction in the sense of and and, and I think it's it's interesting. So the the Serta board riders um, Trimark priming transactions result were effectuated through. Basically, the same restricted group, no transfers of assets, but just a subordination of liens. Right. My understanding is that the Encora Westco priming transaction was affected through transfers of assets into an unrestricted subsidiary, or at least a a new entity. So it's not you're not just changing lien priority. You're you're changing the 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 credit box and and where the the value is for purposes of elevating the recovery of the bondholders. Um, You know the end result is not really different, although it could definitely have different implications in in a bankruptcy. Um, And so again, I think all of these are of the vintage of sponsors, borrowers, and Lenders just getting more aggressive and getting more, I guess you would say, creative. Now, I don't know that it's something that has um, occurred after the pandemic. I think there was a lot of aggressive financings, you know, before the pandemic. I think the pandemic. Because of all the the Federal Reserve easing and, and the liquidity, reduced the opportunities um, available to a lot of distressed um, hedge you know hedge funds and, and private credit lenders that are you know specialize in either distressed debt or high yield or are looking for a certain return, and so you. You saw that if I can't get returns from the company, or how am I going to sweeten my return if once I get a certain amount from the company? Oh, I'm going to get it from the other lenders, and so that and, and all of the these you know minority lender lender on violence cases. To me, the, the underlying theme is essentially stripping value from minority lenders and if we lived in an alternative world where maybe post-COVID there wasn't so much liquidity and the the ability to retain a high return uh was easier um just given the that there were more opportunities to take on risk and and you know people weren't throwing money at um you know questionable businesses um then then maybe you wouldn't have seen the the more aggressive uh you know priming transactions right so so in that sense maybe i think post-covid did sort of precipitate more aggressive transactions but i don't think it really changed the the actual four corners of, of the loan agreements i mean and all, I'm pretty sure in all the loan agreements, um, they were all entered prior to, to COVID. Um, and I think, again, now the market is more focused on lender-on-lender issues versus, you know, borrower, sponsor, or leakage transactions. I think they're now focused on both of
1: them. And that's a very good point. So do you expect to see more creditor-on-creditor violence, given that it's just really not easy to make money now? Yes, I I
2: do, though it's funny. It's it's definitely not easy to make money now, though interest rates are are slowly um, rising and there does seem to be more opportunities for players in distress, but... I think once you you open up the gates in terms of the universe of of the possible and and what's sort of accepted, that these, what you call lender on lender violence, is not going to stop until there are actual decisions that, um, you know, hold that the particular transactions uh, were either a breach of the credit agreement, violated the implied covenant of good faith. The implied covenant of the of duty of good faith in in uh, in terms of how the the lenders and, and the borrowers you know operate under the four corners of, of the, the contract. Um, so I think until you see adverse decisions, I, I fully expect to see more of these type of transactions. And I, I think you know, look, lenders. It's tough for a lender to take the position that, well, my institution, we don't participate in priming financings that aren't offered, you know, pro rata. Because the, the whole, like, these all these required lender financings, right, you just have to find 50.1% of the loans. And then you can ostensibly, you know, effectuate the transaction, right? So there's obviously fungibility in, in who holds the loans. So if there has to be, at least among some of the lenders, especially ones that have been victimized by these transactions, some reluctance to participate, but then also a view of how, and I, how can I, in, in good faith, um, basically, forego an opportunity uh, to to increase my recovery, um, if if the borrower and other lenders are willing to do it. Um, the other thing I would note is that in in these litigations, in when these transactions are challenged, right, the majority lender group is indemnified under the probably the existing credit agreement and then the super priority credit agreement and probably under whatever transaction documents they enter into with, with the borrower from the legal fees associated with the, the challenge of the priming financing transaction. So it's really the borrower that bears the risk of the priming financing being challenged um i think i mean look and and obviously a, a secured lender especially in a distressed company right like well if if the borrower is paying any cash that the borrower is paying is is reducing the recovery you know ostensibly re- potentially reducing the recovery for the senior lenders um but but still i mean let, let's the actual cash payment is coming from the borrower so it's tough. I'm simply saying that I can be sympathetic to the lenders that are participating in these transactions, even if they themselves have have been victims in other transactions. Because they, you know, it's it's they probably have the view of if if I don't participate, then someone else will, and I have you know fiduciary duties to my LPs to maximize their recovery. And ultimately, if the transaction wasn't permitted, then the minority lenders can sue and it'll, you know, the court will decide. So, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to the lenders, um, even though I think in, in certain circumstances, the actions taken have been extremely aggressive and I think, you know, punitive and beyond what I would say would be a you know a, a rational business purpose.
1: And last question, do you expect to see a pickup in chapter elevens given just the multiple pressure points out there? I mean inflation is looking very ugly at the moment.
2: Yeah, so I'm probably not the best person to ask because I've, I've given up as a as a macro and, and investor and, and forecaster. I think the short answer is yes, just because the the level of chapter filings, chapter eleven filings in twenty twenty-one were were extremely low. Um, I, I think I read last year that that the high yield, you know, default index was at at a multi, multi-year low. And so I don't think it takes much to have an increase of chapter eleven filings. I mean, if you're starting from a base that's you know the lowest in, in 20 years, a 10% increase is still a low number of Chapter 11 filings. I think a lot of the decrease in Chapter 11 filings is attributable not just to where we are in the credit cycle. I think investors have become savvier with respect to the costs and downsides of Chapter 11. And so you do see a lot more out-of-court restructurings. I've personally been involved in in various situations where the majority lenders foregoed additional consideration, or or put a different way, gave additional consideration to, to junior constituents. In order to avoid a Chapter 11, and under the view that a Chapter 11 would would just be more expensive, so just from a cost benefit perspective, they'd rather give the the, the tip to the junior lenders that, that were out of the money than actually incur, you know, cash costs of Chapter 11. And then, of course, you know, every business you'll ever represent um, either as company counsel or as the counterparty to, to your lender clients will tell you that, you know, chapter 11 is is not good for business. Although I think there's, that's definitely the degree of which it's not good for business varies. And there's definitely always skepticism when that's said by management, um, depending upon the facts and circumstances um, that there's still, it's still true to some extent, right? Like it's not a great headline uh, to issue a press release that, um, you know, your company's filing for chapter eleven. Uh, there's still some stigma, although I think it's much less than it was years ago, around uh, filing for Chapter 11. and no one everyone would would avoid that if possible. Um, so I think the short answer is, I do expect to see a pickup in action you 're right, there all there are multiple pressure points, increased inflation, supply chain issues, uh, higher interest rates, probably less business confidence and, and lower consumer sentiment. And then you have this against a backdrop of high leverage, right? Uh, you know unfortunately in, in this this bull market cycle, it hasn't been marked by a reduction in, in leverage right it's definitely you know more debt a lot of kicking the can and so you still have to deal with that now i think the the bullish case for or bearish case for increased chapter 11 filings and that a lot of my you know finance private credit colleagues like to point out is that there's a lot of Dry powder on the sideline. A lot of private equity funds, private credit funds have raised a lot of capital. And so, you know, they're incentivized to deploy that. And oftentimes you'll see lend, you know, institutions put in new money to protect their existing investment. Uh, and they'd rather avoid a, a Chapter 11 or a hard restructuring and, and put in new money and, and hope the business can turn turn it around. And so you have a lot of sort of headwinds towards a substantial, you know, Chapter 11 cycle. But I say that all caveated by the the point that if I was a a good macro investor, I, I certainly would not be a lawyer. I would I would be my client or.
1: Michael, thank you so much. This was a great conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Rashmi.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also check us out on the Mystia platform.